Welcome to the Labor History Podcast, produced by Ian Hudson. I'm Avery Ware. This talk is called Doing It Ourselves, A History of Rank-and-File Independent Action in Unions. Last year, a new thing happened. There was teacher strikes, but they weren't by school district. They were by entire state in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, and Kentucky. By the end of the year, strike numbers, in decline for so long, were higher than any year since 1986. The idea began to spread. The labor movement is finally reviving, finally becoming a movement again. Labor movement vitality means more than just strike numbers. We need quality, not just quantity. That statewide character was a new quality. Another quality we hadn't seen since much better times was a willingness to break the law and to strike with or without official union authorization. That's why these strikes were called wildcats. Moving into new territory was another quality. These were Trump voting states, states with low union density and historic right to work laws. Slavery, segregation, and white supremacy have long crippled the U.S. labor movement, making it much less powerful than in social democratic Europe, above all by creating a low-wage anti-union South. And yet, here came the red state teachers. In none of these states were a majority of teachers unionized. In none of them do teachers have contracts. But that actually made them stronger. Rank-and-file teachers created Facebook groups and organized escalating tactics, starting with school walk-ins all together in the morning and culminating with the strikes and the marches to occupy Capitol buildings. Without their moderate and politician-focused union leaderships stopping them. In Arizona, where they won a 20% raise from the Republican-dominated state government. Teachers created a school delegate system with 2,000 schools represented. It acted as a kind of steering committee during the struggle. The strike wave has since spread to Denver, to 14 counties in Washington state, to the first three ever charter school strikes, all of them victorious. Two of those were in Chicago, one was in L.A., to Oakland, where two one-day wildcat strikes and one mass student sick-out preceded the citywide strike. And to L.A. But you can't understand that L.A. teachers' strike, the biggest and most clear-cut victory in the Red for Ed movement so far, without understanding the long struggle for control inside UTLA by rank-and-file teachers. In the early 2000s, L.A. teachers involved in the socialist group Solidarity, who were the founders of Labor Notes, about more of which later, started a caucus in the union called PEAK, Progressive Educators for Action, PEAK. And PEAK challenged the UTLA leadership's accommodating stance toward charter schools, which were viewed much more positively throughout society in the early 2000s. 
Peak pushed for rallies and strikes when the leadership's focus was mostly on endorsing politicians. Peak grew, and it allied with other forces, running its members and endorsing others for union office, like A.J. Duffy, who won a contested election for the presidency in 2005. In 2011, the local led an occupation of the district office, right in the middle of the nationwide Occupy movement. Things went back and forth between the old guard and rank-and-file self-organizers um, through, for example, the return of the old guard, with President Warren uh, Fletcher taking over in 2011. Then finally in 2015, Alex Caputo Pearl, another organized socialist, won the presidency, and Union Power, which was the successor organization to Peak, it swept the top offices of the Union in that same election. Alliances with parents and student social justice organizations, a campaign to prepare teachers to strike, and the organization of leadership committees at every school in the district completed the long-term rank-and-file-led transformation process and culminated in the strike. I could tell a very similar story about events leading to the 2012 Chicago teacher strike. So, rank-and-file insurgencies inside the unions built our 2018-19 labor movement revival. It was rank-and-file insurgencies that we have to thank. But that's nothing new. When the unions went from 2.3 to 5 million members in the teens, 1911 to 1920, wildcat strikes played a growing role. In the 1920 peak of the strike wave, 55% of the strikers were wildcats. Rank-and-file rebel caucuses grew out of these wildcats to challenge established leaderships. Some of the unions that had this going on were the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union, uh, the Fur Workers, and the United Mine Workers. Mine Workers had a rank-and-file group called the Save the Union. Save the Union gave voice to marginalized black miners. And they ran John Brophy for president of the International Union against the autocratic John L. Lewis, managing one-thirds of the vote at the 1926 Mine Workers Convention, even as their supporters, like communist um, Powers Hapgood, were beat up in their hotel rooms by pro-Lewis thugs. This was anything but a genuinely democratic convention, yet they managed one-third of the vote. In the fur workers, the rank-and-filers were called, called themselves the Furriers Agitation Committee. And they were led by Jewish immigrant socialist Ben Gold in New York City. And they campaigned, to start with, for the furriers to fire the mobsters that the union had been paying to do picket duty. What used to happen was the fur shops would hire gangsters to beat up striking workers. So the union in response, hired their own mobsters to do the picketing. But Gold and the rank-and-filers argued that the gangsters ended up infiltrating and robbing the Union. So the Furrier's Agitation Committee organized workers to do their own picketing. 
Then, when gangsters threatened gold with guns if he didn't pay them for the picketing that they had done in the past, gold said, I did not hire you. I'm not going to pay you. Somehow, at this dramatic moment, a system was in place where a signal was sent out, and rank-and-file furriers descended on the office where Gold worked because he had been elected to Union office by this time. And they showed up at Union headquarters and roughed up the criminals. And they, they didn't come back. Of course, the rank-and-file takeover of the Fur Workers' Union led to auditing the books and cleansing the Union of the Jewish Mafia. And then that in turn led to a successful strike of Greek fur workers in 1925, in turn leading to Gold becoming the president of the whole international. In the radical 30s, when our movement reached peak strength, wildcat action was even more crucial. We've already seen in an earlier session that the most important strike in U.S. history, the 1937 Flint sit-down at GM, called the Gettysburg of American Labor by historian Art Price, was won through the brilliant plan of rank-and-file socialist autoworker Kermit Johnson. People may remember Kermit Johnson's wife, Janora Jones Dollinger, was the woman who organized the Women's Emergency Brigade, which armed themselves and played a key role in picketing and helping to win the struggle. Kermit Johnson's plan, with the sit-down, was to set up a decoy occupation of Buick's Fisher Body Plant Number 9. Send out word, the occupation's on in Plant Number 9. The police went to Number 9, and that allowed the real sit-down to get going. They wouldn't have made it inside the plant otherwise, in Fisher Body 4. That sit-down tactic, in some ways the pivotal, victorious moment in our history, was opposed by the head of the CIO at the time, that same John L. Lewis, who was the head of the mine workers as well as the CIO. An excellent book called Teamster Rebellion tells the story of the 1934 Minneapolis truckers' strike, which at its high point turned into a citywide general strike. The strike was led through the growing influence of a group of Trotskyists who gradually won the support of their co-workers and displaced another conservative and mafia-tied local bureaucracy of the Teamsters Union. Their strategy was maximum democracy, maximum transparency, maximum participation. During this strike, they held daily mass information and decision-making meetings. They actually published a daily strike newspaper called The Organizer to keep members maximally informed. They organized the wives of the all-male truckers to help out at strike headquarters and to create a strike kitchen to feed workers. They organized this creative flying picket squad, as they called it, in which workers around the city kept a lookout for scab trucks. And when they saw them, they would contact the headquarters. Then the squad would send out rival trucks full of picketers to make sure that the scab trucks couldn't do their business unmolested. And they created a 101-strong elected strike committee composed of rank-and-filers with executive power over the strike. When it came time to defend the strike against dozens of armed deputies, 
the Union was ready with hundreds of workers armed with clubs who defeated the police in what became known as the Battle of Deputies Run. The spirit of do-it-ourselves, of bottom-up rank-and-file power, was so widespread during labor's high point in the 30s that one reason the 1935 National Labor Relations, or Wagner Act, actually gained enough support to pass into law in Congress was that a number of liberal politicians hoped that by recognizing and giving legal authority to union officials, those officials would be more powerful and able to rein in rank-and-file workers who were getting used to exercising their power at the point of production on a daily basis. For example, the auto workers union, which was vibrant with a number of internal rival caucuses in the 30s and 40s, was notorious for wildcat walkouts in which any shop floor grievance, instead of being settled at a hearing later on, would be acted upon immediately by shop stewards just calling the workers out. And we just had this impromptu strike, now we'll negotiate with the foreman until we're satisfied. Workers are in our strongest negotiating position when we're actually shutting down work. So why has independently organized rank-and-file action, very often needing to act against established union leadership, been key to labor's main victories today and in the past? Our society organizes collective survival through incentivizing the profit system. It's incentivized because those running the system work hard to ensure that, on average, employers can get more for an hour of our work than they pay for an hour's wage. Otherwise, investment in tools and labor cannot turn a profit, on average, across the economy. So all the power structures of the society work together to support this unnatural goal of our wages on average, in general, being less than the value we're producing through that labor. The only power in society potentially able to resist this is the organized wage-working majority. The 82% of the economically active population classified by the Bureau of Labor Statistics as non-supervisory employees, people who can be fired, but they can't fire anybody else. That's why the fact that we're the only force that can resist the theft of our, of our wealth that we create, that's why we come together in unions. But just organizing a union by itself does nothing. In order for the union to become an instrument of our power, it has to be all of us deciding and acting together. Yet most of the time, that's not possible. Daily life in this system keeps us busy and separate, for the most part. So unions tend to hire staff members to hold things together day to day. Not all unions do this, and not all of them have to. I remember hearing in the 90s about the Tijuana Telephone Workers Union and how they used to rotate staff jobs between rank-and-file members, and they would serve their terms and staff for a year and then go back to the telephones and someone else would come in. The Puerto Rico Teachers Union has done similar things, the FMPR. 
But without a highly activist membership, over time, in general, unions tend to develop a group of full-time staffers who don't experience the uh, on-the-job exploitation and tyranny from the employer of the members. In the theory of Labor Notes founder Kim Moody, who wrote a pamphlet called The Rank-and-File Strategy, this union bureaucracy develops its own interests and its own worldview, separate from the rank-and-file, based on keeping the membership dues, which pay their salaries, safe, and based on establishing amicable relations with the employers so that, in theory, good contracts can be negotiated for the members without strife. Seeking friendly politicians can be another tempting way to try to win without ever using our actual power. The union bureaucracy can end up asserting its influence to effectively dominate decision-making. And sometimes these union bureaucracies start using unfair methods to stay in power, in extreme cases using violence or linking with organized crime. And then, rank-and-file workers' efforts to use the union to organize our collective workplace power in our own interests necessarily becomes a fight for union democracy as well. Unions are contradictory. They exist to defend us while coexisting in a system that must exploit us. They aren't built to get rid of that system, so they're torn between resisting it and making peace with it. But unlike almost any other power center in this society, unions remain fundamentally ours. No matter how bureaucratic or in undemocratic they may become, we can still fight to take them over in a way that it would be illegal to do, say, in the places we work. If the 30s and 40s were the high point of the rank-and-file rank independence, they weren't the last time that it flourished. In the late 60s, wildcat strikes began to increase, like the 1968 wildcat by black workers at Dodge, Maine, in Detroit. They struck against the company, but also against racist discrimination inside the auto workers union. That wildcat led to the formation of the rank-and-file caucus called the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, DRUM, which temporarily considered itself part of the Black Panther Party. It inspired other similar factory groups in Detroit and in the Bay Area, and those different groups grouped themselves together in the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. In 1970, an unprecedented nationwide illegal wildcat strike shut down the U.S. Postal Service, and that forced Nixon to make a failed attempt to keep the mail service going by using the National Guard as strike breakers but the Wildcat won. That same year, car haul drivers somehow managed to carry out their own nationwide Wildcat against the orders of the Teamsters Union. To the small anti-war and free speech group, the International Socialists, these national Wildcats suggested that the rebellious direct action movements of the previous decade were starting to infect the workplace, where ownership and control the means of survival the basic power of society could actually be fought over. The basic control of our lives could be contested, and we could fight to have that control. In their thinking, believing a workers' revolution was actually a growing possibility, 
They sent 50 of their members to push it along by getting jobs as truck and UPS drivers inside the Teamsters Union. By 1976, this led to the founding of Teamsters for a Democratic Union, TDU, which was leading strikes and also running for union leadership. TDU founder Pete Camarata was beaten up by Teamster thugs at the 1976 International Convention, just like we saw with left-wing miners in the 20s. But today, TDU is poised to run a very strong candidate who might well replace outgoing Teamsters president, who, if people don't know, happens to be named James Hoffa, Jr. Other 70s socialists went into and led rank-and-file challenges in the steel workers, communication workers, and farm workers unions. The mine workers saw strikes and the victory of Miners for Democracy, whose candidate Arnold Miller took office after the Tony Boyle administration, which had run the union, was accused of assassinating Jock Yablonski. Yablonski had simply tried to run against Boyle for president. The International Socialists at this time had a column in their newspaper called Labor Notes, and this was later turned into a regular newsletter dedicated to sharing news between different rank-and-file movements and caucuses across the country. And as the country headed deep into Reaganism and the corporate-dominated, low-wage, union-busting world that took shape after the 1970s, Labor Notes kept alive the memory of independent rank-and-file organization in our own interests and the spirit of our ability to work together and do things with immense creativity, as we've seen in some of the examples I've listed. Labor Notes has been able to play a role transmitting the flame of this idea forward to the present day and looking at the recent developments in the unions where just maybe these ideas time has come.